Hey, welcome to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music from the inside and out. I'm Noah, but you probably know me best as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and I make the YouTube channel 12 Tone. And today, Noah and I have both made videos in the past about cover songs, so we thought it might be fun to sort of discuss what we think a good cover song is and how we approach those. And I think if this works for you, a place that I thought would be interesting to start would be defining our terms. So Ooh, yeah. what is a cover song? That brings up a really interesting question because I never actually really know our standards covers. If, if someone does something from the from the Great American Songbook, is that a cover song? I really don't know. Yeah, that was definitely one of the points I was going to bring up. You might talk about doing like covering this song, but like, I don't know that I would view it in the same way that I would view something like All Along the Watchtower if someone was like, oh, check out my version of Lullaby of Birdland or so what? Yeah. Just like these are songs that have been become so baked into the jazz canon that, you know, you can sort of similarly when you look at like a symphony, if you go to the symphony and they play Beethoven's Ninth, is that a cover? It doesn't feel like a cover. I would say that's definitely not a cover. I would, I, I'm pretty comfortable saying that like performances of symphonies and stuff like that aren't covers, but it gets, it gets a little more complicated when you get into standards in the great American songbook. Cause I yeah. think, I think one of the big things is the concept of a cover is a very modern invention. It used to be that people just played songs. You know, like folk songs, yeah. you didn't you didn't just cover folk songs, you just played folk songs, you just played blues songs. They were just songs that you knew. But I think kind of with the rise of music as an industry and with the rise of the idea of intellectual property and, and generally both of those kind of coincide very nicely with rock and roll. And I think that's kind of where where a lot of covers really really got their start was in yeah. I think rock is the first genre that you can point to as inventing culturally what we understand is a cover. Yeah, and it's interesting to sort of frame it around industry and intellectual property because I think one of the big distinctions between when you look at like folk songs versus cover songs is that the concept that a song has an owner, right? Like someone yes. wrote Stairway to Heaven. And if I perform Stairway to Heaven, I am doing a thing that they did. Whereas like, I don't know, maybe at some point we knew who wrote like Green Sleeves. I believe that my understanding on that one specifically, because I happen to have looked this up, uh, read about this for a video that I made, uh, is that like it's attributed to some king. I don't remember which king, but that like the general historical record says, eh, probably not. So, but like we we, we don't know necessarily who wrote. Yeah. Like these folk songs that that's been lost like some random traveling troubadour wrote this melody and played this thing and we don't know who who they are we don't know what they did but we do know who wrote these modern more uh, songs that we get covered again that bumps into trouble when it comes to jazz standards because like like we know yeah. that richard rogers wrote my funny valentine if i just play my funny valentine or i think it's richard rogers and just looked it up lauren's heart if I just play My Funny Valentine outright, I'm not sure if it's a cover. Yeah. But if I play something that is based on Chet Baker's take on My Funny Valentine, because that Chet Baker's take on My Funny Valentine or Nina Simone's take, like these are these are kind of their own unique musical objects, not just in the songwriting, but in the performance, in the vocals, in the arrangement. I think it's possible to cover chet baker's my funny valentine i also think it's possible just to do my funny valentine as a standard if that makes any amount of sense 
it's sort of it's hard for me to think of doing a cover of a jazz song because like so much of what what I think of in jazz is improvisation, right? So like even if you have that sort of like you play like the melody from My Funny Valentine the first time through and then you play vamp like solo over the chords, unless you're like playing the solos from Chet Baker's version, it's sort of hard for me to think of that as a cover. But but I think I mean Chet Baker's My Funny Valentine is less about it, it's more of a vocal showpiece. Like it's a lot more. That's true. I'm not super familiar with that exact in- version. Just <laughs> you should listen to it. It is it is I devastating. It, it, it's more along the lines of Frank Sinatra or someone like that, kind of okay. in the more traditional pop side of jazz. Yeah. In my mind, a cover is kind of taking a song that we have a distinct attachment. Like, we as a culture understand some artist did this song. Like, for example, I don't think it always needs to be the original, though. Like, you could cover Marilyn Manson's Sweet Dreams even though Marilyn Manson's Sweet Dreams is a cover of the Eurythmics' Sweet Dreams. Yeah. Taking a song that is in the zeitgeist associated with an owner, with, it, it doesn't need, I guess it doesn't really need to be a creator, but with, with some, almost kind of this gets back to what we were talking about the other week about, like, auteurs, a song that's associated yeah. with some kind of musical auteur, whether it's a band or a, performer or something like that and putting your own spin on it so you're sort of taking a thing and playing not just off the associations people might have with the song in general but the associations they might have with that song in a specific form yes yes Uh, that's exactly it and and i think i think you really hit the nail there i think a lot of a lot of the power of covers comes not from the song itself but from the song itself alongside the associations that we have with the original version of the song. On that note, the other complication that I wanted to bring up before we get into sort of the more general discussion is that I want to draw a distinction here between a cover song and a cover band. Like, for instance, back when I was in college, I went to music school. I don't know if I've mentioned that yet. Back when I was in college, I had a friend who was in a Pantera cover band. Yes. And I I went to see a couple of his shows. And when you go to the show, they're trying to sound like Pantera, right? The The goal of that experience yeah. is to recreate being in the audience of a Pantera uh, show, at least sonically. Like in terms of performance, their thing was different. The band was called Pantera Dactyl and they performed <laughs> in dinosaur onesies. It was pretty cool. But like the, the musically, the idea was that you were supposed to hear like Dimebag Daryl in the guitars yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. You want to hear the experience of seeing them live, which you can't hear now that like, Dimebag is dead and like you couldn't might not have been able to afford or they might not have been in the area and that's sort of a, a role that cover bands fill and then obviously like jukebox cover bands where they just play hits from a bunch of different bands are a similar thing and they I think they serve an important niche in the musical ecosystem I think they're kind of different from what I was more planning yeah. to talk about so I wanted to draw that distinction because in my video I didn't really and I sort of felt bad that that sort of maybe came across as being like, oh, like cover bands are bad at what they do. It's just, it's a fundamentally different thing from, again, all along the watchtower or even the discussion of standards. Yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, I think, I think covers are difficult because there's something where it shouldn't be that hard to describe what they are because we all know what they are. When you and I are talking about covers, when we do our videos on covers, We don't need to, it's not like I had like a two minute section at the beginning explaining what a cover song is because everyone knows what it is. But then when you start to nitpick at it, when you, 
when you look at it, yeah. I don't know, it's kind of like a gradient where like from afar, you can say this is a cover, this isn't a cover. But when you zoom in close, you're like, I'm actually not sure where where the line between covers and standards or e- even like even sometimes getting into things with like samples and interpolations. Yeah, there's a lot of gray space. But I think I think generally, yeah, what what we want to talk about today is kind of just artists doing versions of other artists' songs. Since since you mentioned samples, that's just sort of sorry. That's oh no, got go my ahead. brain spinning out. But just like. Got me thinking. It's like, is Power a cover? Like Kanye West's Power? I would not call. I would not call that a cover. But I do think. Yeah. Snoop Dogg does a cover of Lottie Dottie. Yeah. And that I would call a cover. Covers in hip hop are. I think. I think they should be done more because whenever I see them, I think they're fantastic. But they're a really weird, rare niche. Yeah. Something that I think is really cool in hip hop that that you you get in hip hop covers that you don't really get in in others is in hip hop covers because hip hop is all about the lyricism and the bars you actually you you a lot of the time what you'll see is people covering kind of like rapping over the same beat and singing the same hook yeah. but then adding their own raps in the verse and that's something that I'm very comfortable calling a cover but I think that that's very yeah. much the hip hop medium of the cover. If someone, if someone in rock, if someone in rock, like let's say someone covered, um, I don't know, I want to hold your hand by the Beatles and did the chorus the same, but changed the lyrics of the verse. I'm not sure if I would consider that a cover. Have you heard the Limp Biscuit cover of Behind Blue Eyes? Oh my God. Unfortunately, I have. Sorry. Just like, just so we can mention <laughs> that, I just like wrote a whole new verse. <laughs> The example for the stuff you're talking about that comes to mind for me is Walk This Way. Yes, uh, yes. I believe, was that, that was Run DMC, right? Yes. Where they sort of had have, have the Aerosmith hook and then they, oh, they aren't doing the same words. And I think that's that's a really good sort of definitely a cover, but also very, very different both lyrically and sort of musically. There's also covers where like it can very much stretch the definition of a cover. Like, are you familiar with Isaac Hayes' Walk On By? I am not, no. Okay, so Walk On By is a song by Dionne Warwick. Um, well, I think she performed the original version. It's one of these kind of like, it was a yeah. Stax record. It's Soul Music is another one where there's just standards that people do and people do each other's songs. But Walk On By is like a pretty a pretty classic soul song. It's like a two and a half minute. It's Stax records, so it's not technically Motown, but like that vibe, you know? Yeah. And Isaac Hayes... His version of Walk On By is this like 12 minute long extended jam with orchestral swells and greasy guitar. His whole album, Hot Buttered Soul, takes these these covers and kind of like the other one is By the Time I Got to Phoenix, which I think is actually a country song. But he stretches it out into this whole wild uh, like super just just massive epic in scope song again i don't know if i call that a cover i think i do i think you can really push the grounds with covers and i think that that's something that a lot of really cool covers do is a lot of really cool covers kind of take something some small thing in the song and extrapolate it to its logical extreme i think a lot of what i see isaac hayes doing with these covers is taking the emotional heart of the song 
and and just sitting in that emotion and letting it stew and letting it build rather than just kind of keeping it in a two minute box. Yeah, that was sort of like the central thesis of at least my cover video, at least uh, I said at least twice there. Don't worry about yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> Like a good cover, sort of what what I'm looking for in a cover, again, a, a cover song by an established artist. And that's, I think, where I would probably sort of draw the line is like you are making a thing that is built off something someone else made, but you are using it for your own artistic vision, right? Yeah. I think that that's sort of where for going forward, roughly what I'm going to mean when I say a cover song. Yeah, I think I think we can agree on that. I think I think. From here on out, we, we can kind of yeah. stop stop looking into the question of does this count as a cover song? And I mean, yeah. if we if we encounter an example that that is borderline, we can talk about it. But I think generally we know we know yeah. the we know the road we're driving on now. Yeah. And that definition still doesn't answer the standards question. So you know, yeah. we may rotate back to that at some point. But like for that, when I'm looking at a cover song, what I want is for something that sort of takes the heart of the piece and changes everything else, right? Yeah. So it's just like, I, I think sort of the the argument that, and I'll try like go over the argument I made in the video a little bit just so that I don't have to be sort of doing it piecemeal throughout the thing. It, so if you're trying to make something that means something to me, I'm going to be comparing it to the original, right? Like if you do a cover of, I don't know, to pick a random example, Africa by Toto. <laughs> a completely, completely random example. <laughs> off the top of my head, just, you know... And, but uh, but just if you do a cover of Africa, I already have an attachment to the original. And so if I want to add your song to the rotation of stuff I listen to, if I want to care about your song, it has to give me something the original doesn't. That's a thing that I think is often missing in those sorts of covers. Like to drop the mask for a second, I did use the Weezer cover example in my original video. I'll stop pretending that that was random. Yeah, it's, I think, a really good example of a song where that... Listening to them back to back, if I just like, there are differences. Like the way you, Weezer uses drums are noticeably different. There's like heavier guitars in the chorus, but it's just like, it all feels like window dressing. Yeah. And it all feels like fundamentally when I listen to Weezer's Africa, I'm listening to Weezer Presents Toto's Africa. And so it's very hard for me to care. Another cover I, I'd put in that category, I feel very similar about the Wallflowers cover of Heroes by David Bowie. Yeah. I think you need to add something to the conversation. But I also don't think that automatically makes it a good cover because I think a lot of covers that I find are really kind of lazy is just plain old genre shifted covers. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of these on YouTube and some of them are really good and really fun. I mean, someone like Postmodern Jukebox does this very well, does these cool genre shifted covers. But a lot of the time I'll, I'll see covers that are, and I think you talk about this in your, uh, I think yeah. you talk about this in your video where it's like, oh, this is a metal cover of a Justin Bieber song. And then it's basically a completely different song with Justin Bieber lyrics. My diagnosis of what's happening there. I believe that to make a good cover, you have to like the song. Yeah. Right. Like it has to come from a place of admiration. Like it, that can even be a frustrated admiration. Like I think there's something really cool in here, but you didn't do it right. Like that's that's fine. Yeah. But there has to be something you have to enjoy the song and i think a lot of those like you know i'm gonna do a metal cover of taylor swift's 22 and it's like you don't like taylor swift's 22 i like taylor swift's 22 it's a good song but like the people covering the song doing like a metal version they, they don't care about that song they they just like 
they think it's funny to take Taylor Swift lyrics and screen them over a riff. And if that does it for you, I'm not going to not going to yeah. knock it. But like, it doesn't do much for me. And it just seems like you said, lazy. I think the thing is, there was a time when those kind of covers, I had more time for those kinds of covers because there was a time where it was actually like a unique thing. And, and there was kind of yeah. like the the pop goes punk CDs. I don't know if you ever listened to those, but it was a thing in the early 2000s. Nowadays, it just feels like a gimmick. And personally, I don't really like gimmicky covers. I think there's room for them. And there's there's some there's some gimmicks like, I don't know, like, do you know, do you know of the band Dread Zeppelin? I don't, but I think I can figure it out from context. I assume it's a reggae uh, Led Zeppelin cover band. It's a it's a reggae Led Zeppelin cover band. Uh, What the name does not tell you is that they are fronted by an Elvis impersonator. Um, sure. <laughs> it's just pure schlock and there's room for schlock. But personally, that's not that's not what does it for me in a cover. And I think a lot of the time the gimmick of the gimmick of just changing the genre for the sake of changing the z- genre, changing the genre, because it'd be like, oh, it's weird to hear this rock song that you love in a top 40 pop environment. It's like, honestly, the composition practices in most major like Western pop art music, like rock, yeah. metal, pop, funk, like the composition practices in these aren't even usually that far. Like they're not usually that different from each other that like just changing the genre adds that much to the cover. The thing that I would say sort of the way I view gimmicks, because I, I don't think gimmicks are inherently bad. Uh, and I don't think you're saying they are either, but I like this is ghost notes. Nothing is inherently bad. No, <laughs> all music is good, but some music is more good than others. Uh, <laughs> in the case of gimmicks, what I tend to look for is not so much like, is this an interesting idea? Like, would I listen to this song? The question is, would I listen to this song twice? Yeah, right. I think that's to sort of go off covers for a second. Like, that's a thing that happens a lot in comedy music. Like. I yes. think to, like the, the Lonely Island is a great example of a band that like does comedy music, does like funny stuff that you listen to and it's enjoyable. But the songs are also just good. Yes, like you can just you can just like Jack Sparrow slaps. I'm not gonna apologize oh my, for that. Yeah, and Jack so, Sparrow has such a such a big sexy Michael Bolton hook. I'll I'll listen to that perfect. any day. It's such a good part, and it's just like, but you see songs, and I sort of view this as like. Not to say mean things about Weird Al because I know people will get mad at me, but I'm not a huge fan of, of Weird Al. I agree because because of sort of that that same thing of like his songs are fun once, but every time after the first time, I would rather listen to the original. Yeah, the the whole and Weird Al actually kind of verges us back into cover territory too because the whole yeah. parody cover is a genre where Weird Weird Al is definitely better at it than other people. Oh, he's extremely good at what he does. Like, I don't... Yeah, but I feel like YouTube has helped spawn, like, far too many parody covers where it's just kind of shoehorning lyrics about Star Wars or whatever into a Led Zeppelin song, you know? I I, I agree. I really like your assessment of a lot of this stuff. I'll... I'd listen to it and kind of enjoy it once, but I would not, I would not go back to it. Whereas, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the best covers you listen to more than the original, or at least I don't even think it needs to be better or more than the original, but it needs to fit a different space in my head. Like 
I actually really genuinely love Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. Sure. I think I think it is as good of a song as the Hendrix cover. When I I am in a very different headspace and thinking of very different things when I listen to the Dylan compared to when I listen to the Hendrix. And I think that that's that's a sign of a successful cover is that you can take the same song and make me feel different things when listening to it. Yeah, I think that's like a big part of sort of why I was sort of in, in my video and previously in this episode arguing that like changing things is just almost always a strength for cover songs. Like, I think the more you change, to, there, there's a limit, but I think for the most part, it's more likely that you're not changing enough than that you're changing too much is my experience with most cover songs. Because a lot of the time, again, they do sort of, to, to use Africa again, they're different songs. I can point to parts of the arrangement that are different, but they occupy such similar spaces that it's really hard for me to justify wanting to listen to Weezer over Toto. Yeah. Because they're just not bringing anything. And so it's like, whereas if you look at like uh, Hurt, Hurt is sort of one oh, of the yeah. other like, big examples of a cover song that just fundamentally transforms the experience. Like I, listening to Nine Inch Nails Hurt is a really powerful experience. But listening to Johnny Cash is just, just like, I don't even want to say it's a better experience or a deeper experience, but it's a, such a different one because you can sort of hear it's less sort of teenage angst and more sort of an old man reflecting on his life while he stares death in the face. Yeah. And you just can't get that from the Nine Inch Nails version because that's not where Trent Reznor is writing it from. I think there's another thing about that one too, which I talk about a lot in my cover video, which is I think the best covers, I don't think this is necessary for a good cover, but I think the absolute best covers change something not just on a personal level but change the cultural understanding of the song yeah i think i think that's something all along the watchtower as as dylan it's an esoteric dylan song which i love esoteric dylan songs yeah hendrix turns it into an anti-war anti-vietnam specifically protest song and that's incredible just like just like hurt trent reznor it's it's kind of a personal addiction song but johnny cash johnny cash's song is intensely personal but it also makes you kind of question everything about who these massive cultural figures are and how we relate to them as human beings and what it means to be someone like johnny cash and to be looking at death like i think it it asks yeah. a lot of broader questions about our society and and that's something the the other one that I talked about in my video. My video was based on three covers specifically, and the other one that does this is Respect. Aretha Franklin's yeah cover of Respect is astounding and just completely completely changes what that song means culturally. Which I honestly I didn't know Respect was a cover until I like went and went to make a video about it uh yeah as a as a tribute after she passed away and I was looking it up and I was like oh no she didn't write this but it's just like it's so iconically hers when when Otis Redding did it it's just like it can't have the same message that it did when Aretha did it because he's a dude yeah and so just that that fundamental shift and like there's she made some changes in the lyrics like not that many 
but enough to make it clear that she knew what she was doing when she decided to cover that song, oh, right? Oh, like, yeah. Enough yeah. to make it crystal clear that she knew what message she was trying to send. The arrangement has changed a bit as well, too. I mean, lyrically and yeah. the arrangement, there actually is no R-E-S-P-E-C-T part in the, uh, in, in the original, but I think that that's kind of akin to, like, Hendrix adding the riff to All Along the Watchtower, where it's this thing where it's like, I don't know when you think when you think of Hendrix's all along the watchtower, the first thing that comes into mind, like the the vibra the vibra slap the riff riff like it just yeah. And same with as yeah. soon as, as soon as you say respect by Aretha Franklin, in your head you're going R E S P E C T. Like there's no yeah. there there's no separating it. I what I what I want to talk about a little bit is I think I think we all know kind of like the great canonized covers but i think there's a lot of i think there's a lot of leeway in between the great world changing covers the covers that people say are better than the original what what have you and covers that are failures yeah. like i think there's a lot of successful covers a lot of really good covers that i like probably less than the original but i still consider a really good cover yeah i think there's Something in that space is where I think the the majority of covers actually, or the majority of decent covers, um, I guess fall into fall into this space of it gives me something new. It doesn't necessarily give me something better, and I also don't think the goal should be to make a cover that's better than the original. First of all, if someone goes in with that goal, I think it's it's a pretty it's it's ambitious, uh, because. Yeah, you're already depends how good the original is. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But generally, when people cover a song, it's usually a song that people know, which is why you do the cover. I don't think the goal has to be better than the original. And I think covers are always kind of talked about framed in the context of the original uh, as, oh, is this better than the original? And people act like if it's not better than the original, then there's no point in listening to it sometimes, which is just patently false. Again, I think a big part of this is keeping space for both versions if you think of killing me softly for instance like the roberta flack version and the fuji's version are just there's so much different about them i found this out when i tried to put like killing me softly the fuji's version on a patreon song poll is a lot of people really don't like that version i don't get it i really like that version i think it's great i actually like it better than the roberta flack version but like i i sort of I understand where they're coming from. And I think that part of that is this sense that you have to compare them, right? That yeah. if the Killing Me Softly version is good, if you like it, then you have to like it better than the Roberta Flack version. And that's not true. I think if you listen to either one, because again, just over what you were talking about with All Along the Watchtowers, there's such fundamentally different headspaces. They occupy different roles that they're different songs built on the same framework more than they are the same song. And so- you know, if you think of like just songs that are different, like if you compare uh, Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower to Bob Dylan's Tangled Up in Blue, yeah, you're not going to feel the need to argue that one is better than the other. There's just so much different about them that you don't need to compare. But because you have this cover framework, I think that invites the comparison, which is one of the reasons I like personally, I actually do kind of like cross genre covers as a concept. I think they're easy to screw up. But I think that that is a good way to sort of create that separation is just like, oh, well, 
when I'm in the mood for a metal song, I'm going to listen to this metal cover of the song. Whereas if I'm in the mood for a pop song, I'm going to listen to that instead. I agree with you on that. I, I, I don't think cross genres are inherently bad. I think a lot of people just kind of cross over the genre and think that's enough. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of the time that's not enough. Oh, yeah. Again, it always gets talked about as the cover being better than the original, but I don't think so. But I think they both you can hold them both in their in your head is um mad world. Yeah. Everyone loves the sad piano Gary Jules and rightfully so. Like that's a really cool that's a really cool way of taking this sensation, like taking the emotional beats of the original and putting it into a new context. But the original is also just a really, really fantastic song that does a really good job of accomplishing what it's trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's interesting because like I heard the Gary Jules version first. Me too. So sort of in my head, despite the fact that this is not the chronology, the way I process the Tears for Fears version is as a cover. Like when I hear like the Tears for Fears one, like my brain is going like, oh, that's such an interesting take on the Gary Jules song. (laughs) And that's that's not how it works. But again, this sort of comes back to, I think, a big part of what we were talking about at the beginning, the cover experience is that your experience of the song is framed by your experience of another song. I I think there's a lot of songs. I I think a lot of people feel that way, even if they don't like know it. That's that's kind of how a lot of people relate to all along the watchtower yeah um and there's a couple others Uh, i know a lot of people who heard the man who sold the world nirvana's version before bowie's that's a cover that i actually oh that's such a good cover see that's one that i don't it doesn't it doesn't do it for me in the same way as some other covers well you're allowed to be wrong (laughs) (laughs) another one actually that in my mind i am so so familiar with the cover version is twist and shout like, I I think I was probably in university by the time that I learned that Twist and Shout wasn't a Beatles original. It's interesting sort of on The Man Who Sold the World, because for me, part of that goes back to sort of what we were talking about in some other contexts with like Hurt and Johnny Cash, where like part of the impact of Johnny Cash's version of Hurt is not just anything in the music itself, but is sort of the knowledge of who Johnny Cash is yeah. or yeah. was. And the context that that brings to the words he's singing. And I sort of feel that way about The Man Who Sold the World, too. Like, it's just like that, the fact that it's Cobain, what I know about Cobain, especially looking back like decades later at where his life went for the short time after that and what happened. The fact that the, that it was recorded like two months before his death, that's yeah. that's a really good point. And just like, I think really really casts a, like a cultural context on that that again you know it's not like he necessarily changed the most about the arrangement but i think that he changed the voice by being kurt cobain instead of being david bowie and that's a thing like i sort of i want to be careful about like leaning on this too much because i think that you know if anyone's listening to this for songwriting advice my advice is not be kurt cobain or be johnny cash like that's not how yeah. you do a good cover song there's a lot of things you can do I don't have that, but I think that that context of who those people were can change the experience of a song. And I think that that's part of what makes The Man Who Sold the World land so strongly for me. For songwriters, when it comes to finding the heart, I don't think there's an objective heart to any song. I think that's a oh, very sure. subjective thing. And I think if you want to make a good good cover, you you figure out 
why is it that you love the song? What can you strip away and change and add and still keep the thing that you personally love? Because I think that's something like I, I will say for like the man who sold the world. It's it's clear Kurt Cobain just genuinely loves that song. Like he did not change. He didn't change very much because clearly he just loved and admired Bowie and really kind yeah. of related to to what Bowie said there. Yeah. On that note, that was the thing I wanted to bring up was that like you do, you really need to find the parts of the songs you like, but if you really, really like a song that can actually, I think, make covering it hard yeah. just because there's so many things you want to hang on to and you have to sort of figure out what to let go. And I think that one of the things I see a lot in failed covers are covers that don't do a lot for me. I should use more personal language, but covers that don't do a lot for me. It seems like they're using the creative input of the person who wrote the original as a replacement for having a vision of their own. Mm. And that I think is a thing that can really easily go wrong because you sort of fall into the thing. It's like, Oh, the easy work's done. They've wrote the lyrics and the melody and the chords. I just have to like add a cool riff or something. And it's just like, well, is that enough to make the song feel yours? Is that enough to sort of bring it to life in a way that again, gives it a different sort of mental headspace from the original. And I think that, more often than not, really good covers come from people who have an idea of what the song could be, like a specific vision. We keep using All Along the Watchtower. There's a reason it's one of the best covers ever, subjectively speaking. Um, <laughs> but like, there's, there's like, if you look at All Along the Watchtower, there's no doubt in my mind that Jimi Hendrix knew what he wanted that song to be before he played the first note on his guitar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he may have experimented to figure out exactly how he wanted to do it. I'm sure parts of that were improvised, but like there was a clear vision and he knew how to create it. And I think that more often than not, you'll see bands being like, oh, we're just going to do a cover of this song. And they'll just be like, well, we'll just use their vision. Their vision's good. We already like their vision. And it's like, God, but their vision's already in a song. I think an artist that I really like for this that generally is really good at covers is Jack White. And I think that's that's very much the reason why. I think he clearly has thoughts on what these songs should sound like. And often, I mean, I've seen him live a couple times, and he even does what I would what I would call covers of his own songs. Yeah. Like last time I saw him live, he was touring Boarding House Reach, and he did a version of Hotel Yorba. It was an arrangement with like a honky tonk piano. And it's it was awesome. And it was clearly uh, in in my mind that was that was Jack White covering the White Stripes in in this new context. And I think his, his you you can tell. I think when you look at the range of his covers, some of them change nearly everything, and some of them change almost nothing. His cover of Jolene that is a very straightforward, earnest cover. The Dead Weather's cover of New Pony is a very different song than the Dylans, but is also phenomenal. I, I think it's I think it's really interesting to uh I, I said the Dylans there. That's my new <laughs> All all the Dylans. Yeah. You can notice trends and I think artists who tend to do who tend to have good repertoires of covers, you'll notice that you actually can't really find that many similarities when you're comparing all of the songs that they cover to the originals some of them are different some of them are pretty similar they're they're kind of all over the map for artists that are really good at covers i think and an another another 
artists like that actually is Nirvana, the man who uh, sold the world. Under, I think part of the reason why I have feelings about it is there are so many good covers on the MTV Unplugged. They play a couple Meat Puppet songs. Their Lake of Fire is incredible. His Where Did You Sleep Last Night take on Lad Belly is astounding. Like Kurt Cobain clearly knew how to cover songs because he he clearly just loved these songs and had a vision for them. Yeah, I think sort of to try and get to sort of the heart of what you're saying there, if I'm interpreting you correctly, is that like for good artists who do this stuff, there's not a formula. Yes, exactly. There's not like, you know, take song, input, change B section to have this additional riff, add this blah, blah, blah. They're treating it as if it's a songwriting exercise. They're treating it the same way they would a new song. And I think that that's, again, to come back to sort of the metal covers of pop songs thing is that that is very formulaic. A lot of that, that's not to say there aren't people who do it well, but like the sort of general stuff you'll find if you just like Google Taylor Swift metal cover or Justin Bieber metal cover, uh, the stuff you'll find is very much people just taking this, take the lyrics, maybe take the melody. I don't know. Depends how good your screamer is. Uh, <laughs> plug that in, put it over a riff, add some blast beats, cover. Yeah. And it's just like it's not based on, again, an artistic vision. It doesn't have that sort of goal. It just has a set of steps that you do to get from point A to point B. A lot of really good genre covers are people who identify a song and realize it's it's rather than like, rather than being, oh, it would be cool or funny to put this into a new genre. They, they identify a song and they say, oh, the entire ethos of this song fits with our genre. My example of yeah. that would be the Clash's cover of I Fought the Law. That is... Yep. <laughs> such a natural cover because it's like it, it's like and there's actually there's actually a surprising number of really good punk covers of country and folk songs because they're both genres that at their core are about working class resistance really like that's that's what it is and i think that's something where a lot of cross genre covers that I find are the best are covers that that find something in a song and are like, oh, what this song is getting at actually speaks to the genre that I play rather than being like, oh, it would be cool to change this song into my genre. It's being like th that's something that I think Marilyn Manson is very good at with his sweet yeah. dreams or tainted love. He li li like material girl. You can see him listening to. Yeah, yeah. You, you can see him listening to stuff and being like, oh, this song is really weird and dark and heavy and creepy when you actually look at it. So it'll adapt to my music very naturally. Yeah, I think punk is like not necessarily uniquely, but really well equipped to do that sort of thing just because it's so ethos heavy. Yeah. Like I think fundamentally like punk has sort of a sonic identity. We talked about this in the genre episode. Go listen to the genre episode. It was good. But like punk has this sort of musical identity it has this aesthetic but it's so built on its ethos too like i think that you can't there's other genres that are sort of less sort of more flexible about that but it's very clear whether a message is punk right it's very yeah. easy to look at a thing and be like this is punk this is not punk so it's it sort of gives punk this great position to just sort of come in and because a lot of punk like vocal delivery has this really strong sarcastic tone to it you can really easily take things that aren't punk and use that to sort of turn the message into punk. And so yeah, 
like punk covers are often very good. And I also think that there's less, I mean, I, I say this being more familiar with metal, the metal community than the punk community, but it feels to me like there's less of a sense that taking things that aren't punk and just doing them as punk will be funny. Yeah. Like, and I think that that's a big stumbling block for metal covers. And I know we keep dunking on metal covers. It's, you know, it's whatever. Because sort of punk bands aren't going to do this for no reason if they don't think it will work. Whereas I think a lot of metal bands will. Yeah. Uh, that I think punk covers usually work out better. Since we've been dunking on a lot of metal covers, I think a metal cover that does this very well is Metallica's Whiskey in the Jar. Oh, yeah. That's identifying this folk song and being like, the ethos of this song goes along with what Metallica was doing and yeah. singing and playing at the time. And it's it's clearly, and again, like, it's not them being like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we took this traditional Irish song and made it metal? It's clearly they love that song. Yeah. It's, it's very clear in the performance of that song. Like, I think that... I'm generally actually not a very big Metallica fan, but I love that cover because it just feels so earnest. It it really feels like there's something in this song that is resonating with the band. I guess a really great way to diffuse the situation there because metalheads were going to be mad at us for dunking on metal covers. But now that we've said something good about Metallica, they're they're going to love us. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like other good like metal covers that aren't of like other metal songs like cross genre metal covers that i think work a lot of people like disturbed's sound of silence oh i love disturbed sound of silence do you not like that are we gonna have to fight about this i think we might have to fight about this Corey. Uh, <laughs> all right <laughs> it just this might just be me not getting new metal I just, I, yeah. if it's not System of a Down, I don't get new metal. I mean, you were disrespecting Otep on Twitter, so. <laughs> you know what? I don't even, I don't even have a good reason for not liking this. It's just a personal taste thing. It just doesn't do it for me, especially because I really, really love the original. And I think the original is a damn near perfect song. So I think it's just a very ambitious cover that. It's okay, but it doesn't do it for me. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, though. I'll be honest. I'm not going to fight you on this. If you yeah, don't yeah. like it, you don't like it. You don't have to like the songs that I like. I, <laughs> this, is the this is the Ghost Notes fight. The Ghost Notes fights. We're going to go at it. I say, well, I just personally don't like it that much. And you say, yeah, no, yeah. that's fair. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, I, I did a video. Uh, it was a response to Adam Neely's video on negative time signatures. This is a complete tangent, by the way. <laughs> But I started out being like, oh, it's, it's like, like framing it as like, oh, we'll get into a YouTube fight and it'll get drive clicks because of the drama. And like one of the first things I say is I actually think Adam's interpretation is pretty good uh, <laughs> because that's what it sounds like when music theorists fight, we, you know, uh, but like unless it's about Schenker, then it gets dirty. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but no, um, the thing about the Disturbed cover of Sound of Silence that I love is that I feel like. Again, it's sort of identifying a thing in the lyrics that the original didn't really know was there or at least acknowledge was there, which is that I think the almost like post-apocalyptic imagery that it paints and the sort of this landscape that is portraying like through a lot of ambiguous imagery, but it feels very dark and again, post-apocalyptic has this epic quality to it. That's fair. That feels very... That I think the disturbed version brings out in a way that the Simon and Garfunkel doesn't. And I think that they sort of 
bring it into a more intimate personal interpretation of that those same events and so i think taking that and heightening everything and making it this big powerful like and in the naked light i saw it's just like that thing is just like really true. hits and makes it powerful in a way that I think worked, but I get why people don't like it, you know? There is a lot of melodrama in the in the lyrics. You're definitely right about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's mostly just it's mostly just my personal uh my personal taste, which is why I don't like it. And it also might just be my own attachment to the original. Because I think that's another thing about covers is a lot of the time, and I think this is why covers are hard in a lot of instances, is a lot of the time people just have attachments to the original that are just very personal attachments. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the Sound of Silence is just always a song that's really resonated with me. And like, I've listened to it in kind of like low points in my life for comfort and stuff like that. There's a lot of distaste for some covers comes from people having intimate personal relationships with songs and it can be very jarring to hear a very different take on something that you have so much emotional baggage tied up into in terms of like human perception we tend to want to see things a certain way right like i think this is the basis of a lot of sort of internet meme fights like the dress yanny laurel whatever where yeah. it's like it was such a big deal that you saw it this way and how could someone else see it differently and to use a recent video i made the ludicrous's roll out uh it was like <laughs> there's a huge amount of like like you know mostly like play fighting but like a huge amount of drama in the music theory world of people just being like i do not understand how you could possibly hear this so wrong and it's just like because you have to have this sense that there is a specific interpretation. And so when I look at songs that I have a deep personal connection to, again, I, I keep using this one because it's, it's a great song, like Song for Adam, Jackson Brown. If you haven't heard it, please listen to it. It's really good. It's a song that's had this deep personal meaning to me for like 25 years. And it's a song that like I cannot imagine understanding another take on if someone heard that song fundamentally differently. Yeah. And so like if I heard a cover of that that didn't somehow manage to hear the very specific stuff I heard in that song and take exactly what I took from it, I don't know that I would be able to move past that in a way that let me enjoy them. This is a tangentially related, but it reminds me of a thing that Sideways has talked about. Do you know the YouTube channel oh, yeah, Sideways? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh he's talked about in some of his videos uh his issues with using like pre-existing popular music in uh, movie yeah. scores because what winds up happening is that you know you don't know if that song was playing during someone's first kiss like you don't know if that was like a song they listened to with their grandmother who passed away last year or like any of these like associations people might have with a song that you have no control over that means you're giving up your ability to shape the emotional reaction that they have, which in terms of movies can be really important because you're trying to complement a scene. And if it's this like big boisterous thing, but it makes me sad because, you know, I have some association with it. Uh, like it was maybe like my exes in my song and they dumped me last week. Yeah. Like then I'm not going to like look at your fun party scene the right way with standalone music, music that's not a part of like a broader work i think it's a little bit more robust to that and so i can sort of look at my experience with uh, sound of silence and sort of put that in the back of my mind and sort of have the experience i have with disturbed song instead like if if disturbed song directly contradicts what i think sound of silence is i could see being unable to look past that 
for me personally, there's a kind of vulnerability and fragility in uh, Sound of Silence that I just don't get from the Disturbed version. Oh yeah, there's no fragility in yeah. the Disturbed version. I'm not going to fight you on that. But but I will I will actually say in defense of Disturbed, their cover of Land of Confusion slaps, yeah. and their yeah. cover of Shout by Tears for Fears. I think I still probably prefer the original. But I'm, I've, I've got time for Disturbed's cover of Shout. I'll have to look that up. That sounds cool. It's, it's solid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Their cover of Shout is another one that's relevant to the genre switching thing I was talking about earlier, because like the lyrics of Shout by Tears for Fears are like, shout, shout, let it all out. These are the things I could do without. And like, if that doesn't scream metal cover yeah. to you, I don't know what does. <laughs> Like, if that doesn't scream specifically new metal cover yeah, to you, I don't ex- know what does. Ex- exactly. So, yeah, no. When you say, like, disturbed cover of Shout, I'm like, yeah, that works. Yeah. I haven't heard it, but that that works. I, I could see that being great. Yeah, I think I think that's something with the, with the genre shift is it's just, it's not doing it just for the sake of the shift. It's doing it because the genre will suit the song. Yeah, because the song works as the new thing, and that's... I think sort of where we disagree in terms of Sound of Silence is that I think that it can hold up to that. And I understand. I think the thing is, a lot of people really like that cover. So I think it's probably me that's the odd one out here. Ah. Oh, <laughs> I, as someone who likes that cover, that hasn't been my experience. Maybe it's just my friends then. I have a lot of fr- I have yeah. I, a lot of my high school friends. Shout out to any of them if they're listening. We're really into like new metal and stuff like that. Yeah. And I know a lot of them were raving about the cover when it came out. I also think partly people are more likely to disagree with someone than to agree with them, which means that, you know, you and I, like, I think it's a very divisive cover is what I think the disturbed sound of silence is. And so people who like it really like it. People who don't like it really don't like it. But if I say I really like it, I'm not going to get a bunch of people running in to be like, I agree. But like, this is going to be people who just cannot help themselves from being like, nope, how could you? This is totally wrong because that's how humans are. And so I think that maybe it's just like splits roughly down the middle. But you and I, because we have strong opinions one way or the other, yeah, are seeing the other people's strong opinions more. I think that's a really good point. I'm just thinking more of other metal covers now. How familiar are you with Renegades, Rage Against the Machine's cover album? Uh, I know like... The song? Yeah. Re- they, they cover Renegades of Funk, yeah. Yeah, I know that one. I'm not super familiar with the album outside of that. So it's really interesting because what it is, is it's a bunch of original music set to lyrics of other songs. L- 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 like, the they do a cover of Maggie's Farm and it doesn't really share much with Maggie's Farm, the Dylan, so, except the lyrics. Yeah. But I also think it's really interesting because I think, especially something like Maggie's Farm, like that is a that is clearly a very political song, and that that fits with Rage Against the Machine. I thought it was about a farm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> yeah, nothing about farms. No, no fictional works about farms are ever political. No. <laughs> They're about animals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you should check out the album because uh, it's, yeah. it's a very interesting, uh, and maybe this is bringing us full circle again. It's a very interesting kind of place with the covers because the instrumentals are basically just new Rage Against the Machine songs, 
but instead of Zach de la Rocha or Zach de la Rocha uh, rapping on top, he's singing the lyrics of all these other songs. It's a it's an interesting kind of uh, experience, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's sort of that does come back to what we were talking about earlier, where just like how much can you change and have it still be a cover? Yeah. Like, does the melody need to be there? I think that's one of the things that my, my general view is like the melody and the lyrics, you shouldn't change unless you have a good or if they're changed, there has to be a good reason. Like, I'm not going to say you shouldn't do whatever you want, write songs. I don't care. But like if a cover song doesn't have a recognizable version of the melody, I'm going to have a hard time really viewing it as a cover. Yeah. And and that's something where a lot of the songs on Renegades are a kind of weird and kind of push things because yeah. I, I I agree with you. I don't think the melody needs to be the exact same. Marilyn Manson's Sweet Dreams. The melody is not the exact same as Eurythmics, but it's definitely there. Like it's recognizably the yeah. same melody. One big example I used in my video that I still think is sort of relevant is like if you change the, the tonality, right? Like if you take a song that was in major and shift it to minor, you're going to be changing some of the notes. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily make it unrecognizable. Another thing you could do is reharmonize in a different key and so you have the same notes but they're filling different roles in the key and therefore feel different I, i'm a huge fan of covers like that like if you take a major melody and harmonize it in the relative minor it's getting maybe a little theory e so i'm not gonna go too deep into that but it's just like it sounds so cool if you just like especially if it's like a major song that has a little bit of like melancholy to it you know yeah i i think i think that's something generally in covers without going too much into the theory a lot of the time that that's kind of a theory way like the musical backdrop of taking these things where a lot of songs will have something like actually sweet dreams where it's like sweet dreams kind of has this weird creepy underpinning but then marilyn manson takes that and really leans into it yeah i, I think Just runs with it yeah. yeah we're approaching time now but i want to uh before we go I think it's it, it'd be fun just to kind of give some recommendations of some some lesser known covers that we love, um, because that's something I, I don't know about you, but, but a lot of people are always asking me for some of my favorite cover songs. This is one of those ones where I heard it first and found out it was a cover later. So, you know, debatable how much it counts. But Jackson Brown's My Personal Revenge okay. is really good. It was originally a poem written by a jailed Nicaraguan statesman. It was then set to music by Luis Enrique Mejia Godoy. I might have pronounced that wrong. I'm sorry if I did. And then it was uh, Jackson Brown uh, translated it and put it on World in Motion, which is one of his most political albums. That's really cool. And so one of the things I really love about it is that I think if you're doing something like that with, where it's a translation, there's this temptation to like change it so that it still rhymes, right? Yeah. Sort of play with the meanings of the words and he didn't like it sort of and i think that that makes it feel more authentic and more genuine and also has has this impact of it's just like it's not just supposed to be a poem i actually don't know if the original rhymes i only know the english version so maybe the original doesn't rhyme either it's it's a really great song and it sort of comes at the end of like a lot of really great like songs it's it's a it's a great album listen to world in motion the next song after it is another cover i am a patriot not as good <laughs> Not like that song very much. It's my least favorite song on the album. Like a version uh, on it's on uh, an Australian radio station. Triple J. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Denzel Curry 
does a cover of Bulls on Parade that is just phenomenal. <laughs> and basically where the guitar solo would be, he adds his own verse. So in the, in the verses, he covers Zach De La Rocha, but then in place of a guitar solo, he adds his own verse, which I think is a really, it's a really neat way of covering a song. And I think that, I, I don't know, I, yeah. I think it's pretty impressive to be able to cover Rage Against the Machine because I think they're very... They're a band that I would have I would have otherwise said are pretty uncoverable. That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is so much about them. That's just like feels essential. Like it's so much more than just the melody and lyrics that makes. Yeah. So like and, and you know, people people do like, you know, lounge cover of Rage Against the Machine or whatever. But it, it, again, it comes back to the question of like, would you listen to it twice? Yeah, exactly. And rarely, rarely. The other big one that I'm a huge fan of is Hosier does a cover of Do I Want to Know by the Arctic Monkeys. And it is phenomenal. The Arctic Monkeys version is this like kind of like sleazy, dark song, like very kind of like erotic song about kind of having a, a crush on someone, but in a like obsessive kind of drunken way. Yeah. And then Hosier turns it into this just like beautiful, stunning, romantic song with a cello arrangement. And it's still very much keeping that heart of just like, just kind of like untamed desire for someone. It's just channeling that energy in a very different way. Interesting, because I really like the Arctic Monkeys version, so I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I, do, I, I honestly could not tell you which song I like better. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal cover. The first time I heard it, I was like, whoa, this, this makes me look at the original in a new light. And I think that's another yeah. thing that we haven't said yet that is a great thing that covers can do, is they can recontextualize the original for you. Yeah, like to go back to Hurt, which is one of my go-to examples here. I think that like looking at Hurt on its own, like I like the song. It sort of has a lot of like directionless angst to it. Even listening to the Nine Inch Nails version, knowing the Johnny Cash version helps give that a bit more of a direction. Yeah, I agree. Even all along the Watchtower again, um, like when you have the Dylan version, it's this weird cryptic kind of apocalyptic thing and then when you have hendrix recontextualizing it suddenly the fact that the vietnam war was raging as dylan wrote it becomes a lot more evident in the lyrics and i i don't know if that's intentional by dylan but i mean dylan generally was pretty political he'll never tell you yeah yeah any more thoughts to get in here i mean i feel like i should just reiterate uh limp biscuit did a cover of behind blue eyes yeah, yeah, I don't just, like just to stress that point. I I don't like I don't like you reiterating that. <laughs> <laughs> the world needs to know. I spend I spend most of my life trying to actively forget that that existed. The people need to hear the Olympiscuit cover of Behind Blue Eyes, Noah. Oh yeah. Yeah. In defense of the Limp Biscuit cover of Behind Blue Eyes. Oh, I love I love hearing you say those words, Corey. <laughs> it's a rough sentence, but it very much is an experience. It is. Like you can't listen to that and think they did nothing, right? You can't listen to that and think, well, this is just the original, right? Like you can sort of through the beginning, kind of. But like when you get to the bridge, like I, I'm not going to spoil what happens in the bridge, right? If you haven't heard the version, it gets weird. They 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 start going rolling, 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 rolling. 
I have ve- I have a very strong visceral reaction to the Limp Biscuit cover of Behind Blue Eyes. And I think that at the end of the day, it's something everyone should experience. That's kind of what you're looking for in music, right? Like I want something that I have a strong opinion about, even if that strong opinion is why does this exist? Yep. Right? And I think that that's a question that a lot of cover songs can't answer. And I think that Limp Biscuits Behind Blue Eyes, I've said that so many times. I really, really feel like weird about the amount of times I've said Limp Biscuits Behind Blue Eyes in the last couple of minutes, but you're forced to engage with that question in a way that like a lot of stuff you just listen to, it's like, this has no reason to exist. Yeah. It's just, it's different. You have to, you're left wondering, like, how did this happen? Who thought this was a good idea and who let this, and like, what is it? What is that experience? It's it's like, it's an enigma. What I was saying earlier about reframing cultural moments, when you listen to Limp Biscuits Behind Blue Eyes, it really does have you wonder a lot of things about the early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, no, it really, I think, again, to come back to the, the thing we were saying about, you know, how it being Johnny Cash changed Hurt and it being Kurt Cobain <laughs> changed the man who sold the world. It being Fred Durst changed that cover of Behind Blue Eyes. If that was just a random band who had done that, I wouldn't have nearly as strong feelings about it. But because Limp Biscuit and Fred Durst are such a weird part of like my early teen years. Like I never listened to them that much, but I knew them and they were around. And it's just like it's such a such a part of that backdrop that looking back and be like, oh wait, those dudes did behind blue eyes. It's yeah. just like again, it's something that I have really strong opinions about and really strong feelings about, and that makes it very hard for me to call it bad. That's a very generous reading of that song. <laughs> Uh, and I think I think that's as good a place as any to end it. Yeah. If you want to find me on YouTube, you can just go to the search bar and search behind blue eyes, Limp Biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all so much uh, for listening. Thanks for subscribing. If you're not listening to this on Nebula, you you could have learned about Limp Biscuit's cover of Behind Blue Eyes <laughs> a month earlier. A month earlier. That is a month of your life that you have gone without thinking about this cover. <laughs> Think which about is more that. time than I've spent not thinking about this cover since I heard it. So. <laughs> yeah, and uh, on YouTube, they're 12-tone. I'm polyphonic. You probably know that already. Yeah, at this point. Yeah. Twitter is 12-tone videos and watch polyphonic. It's also at Ghost Note Show. If you have a topic that you think would be interesting, let us know. Tweet at us at Ghost yeah. Notes Show. And we will probably log in three months after you tweeted and be like, oh, hey, someone someone gave us an idea. <laughs> I mean, three months from now, we're going to be running out of ideas. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Take care.